0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Hello, I am indeed Jessica Pijo. Not the Jessica Pijo, just a Jessica Pijo. Because, of course, there is another. Yes, I found this out because I spend a lot of time alone on my computer furiously Googling myself. <laughs> and, and apparently, there's a Jessica Pijo who works as an office assistant for a physiotherapist in Burnaby. <laughs> you <laughs>
2: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Jonathan Kay. As you already know, the voice you just heard belongs to Vancouver-based comedian Jessica Pigeot, who is also an autism and disability advocate, the co-host of the Histories and Mysteries Podcast, and this month, the author of a widely circulated Quillette article entitled Life as a Stand-Up Comic Can Be Brutal. Safe Space Call-Out Culture is Making It Unbearable. In that article, Pigeot spoke about how a culture of ideological control and monitoring, presided over by a small clique of self-appointed moral guardians, has been afflicting the Vancouver comedy scene, even before the Covid pandemic made everything worse. As listeners have already figured out, Pigeot isn't exactly a right-wing culture warrior. In fact, she's done a lot of her comedy in the so-called safe space feminist niche of Vancouver's comedy scene. But as you'll hear, she's become tired of watching her friends get deplatformed and in some cases even driven out of the comedy industry entirely by insiders who prioritize groupthink over actual talent. And while she describes the situation in Vancouver as especially difficult, the trends she's describing are taking place in plenty of other markets. The result, as she describes it with one example, is a culture in which a venue actually cancelled a so-called problematic comedy gig based on a single email complaint from an anonymous sender with the email address buttchugger604. As regular listeners know, these podcasts are typically about 30 or 40 minutes but this one is more than an hour because Jessica also got into a lot of really interesting tangents about how brutally difficult the stand-up world can be, even putting aside the effects of social justice mobs. And one other thing I should let you know before we continue is that this podcast episode, unlike most of my others, does contain a few bits of language that are not family friendly. So if that isn't your thing, or you're listening with small children, this might not be the episode for you. But for everyone else, on with the show. Can you tell our listeners what safe space comedy is?
3: There's certain things you are not allowed to talk about. Usually it's listed as like no sexist, ableist, classist, racist... Usually like no fat phobic. It, it, it's usually just this long list of broadly defined types of social bigotry, essentially. You usually don't get a definition of what it is. Like no one will define ableism for you. And that's kind of where the breakdown happens. But it, it's basically is this recent movement to have comedy shows that are safe spaces, quote unquote, for particular minority or equity groups, usually by constraining content, but also sometimes by constraining who is even allowed to be in that space.
2: It may surprise some listeners to know that I have some sympathy for the safe space agenda. The last time I went to a comedy club, it was such a frat house atmosphere. This guy got up; he wasn't quite the headliner, but from what I remember, he was a big local star and The first thing, (laughs) the first thing he did, this is vulgar, but I'm just going to say it. The first thing he did was he pointed to some woman in the front row and said, what's your name? And she said, whatever her name was. And he said, oh, great. Now I know what name to scream out when I jerk off later tonight. Like just flat out, that was the way he introduced himself to the world.
3: Incredibly blunt. (laughs) (laughs)
2: What I remember was everyone was super drunk, including this woman and all her friends, and they looked like they were going to be incontinent. They were laughing so hard. And I was like, stop laughing. Don't you know you've been victimized by sexism? And the rest of his act was kind of on that level. I found it really vulgar. Was this the kind of thing that the safe space comedy movement was designed to counteract? To
3: an extent. To an extent, yes. On the one hand, it really doesn't pop up 20 years ago. It's more so like 2013 when it starts happening and it picks up over the course of the next decade or so. But yes, absolutely. This is the kind of frat house, boys will be boys environment that comedy originally took place in. Comedy is one of those odd disciplines where it takes place almost exclusively in bars, almost exclusively in places where there is heavy drinking, places that are heavily masculine. These places are often likewise hotbeds for things like sexual harassment because of the level of intoxication, the lowered inhibitions, sort of lack of chivalry towards those kinds of concerns. Like there's just a combination of factors that lead to an environment that is often kind of hostile to anyone with a modicum of sensitivity. It really is. Like I have a brother who, you know, f- former youth pastor, uh, lives in Alberta. He'd really love to do standup comedy, but he struggles at open mics. Not because he's not funny, but because it is so vulgar and because he is sensitive. He grew up in a church environment. He grew up in a ver- very religious, uh, as did I. And that can be very, very hard. And that is often, especially for uh, upper class people, for women, it's a social environment that is not particularly programmed with them in mind.
2: Well, that said, there's this strong tradition in uptight culture of having humor that's incredibly lowbrow as a way of balancing things out. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Montreal you know, you'd go to a comedy club and a lot of it was like really raunchy bathroom humor and sex stuff. And and sometimes some of the people you saw laughing loudest really having a great time mm-hmm. were buttoned down types.
3: Professional class.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the rules of comedy is you say the things you're not allowed to say. Yes. So again, I'm older than you, but I remember like a really influential comedy album when I was younger was Eddie Murphy's Delirious. With the red pants. So he said the things that a lot of us think, maybe about sex or the bathroom or our family. And I want to get back to this incredibly crude guy at this comedy club I heard when he said that thing to the woman in the front row. I don't think it was right to do it because he was identifying a particular woman, putting her on the spot. But in a way, it was consistent with the mandate of a comedian, like this thing where we all go around pretending we don't think things like that. But occasionally people do think things like that. And he was saying it. Is it difficult to respect people's sensitivities while at the same time staying true to this thing that comedy is supposed to be? Is there a blurry line there?
3: I think there is an incredibly blurry line. Look at the mandate. Your mandate is to push boundaries and talk about the things you're not supposed to talk about. And you are likewise supposed to be respecting sensitivities. And the reason why we create all these normal taboos around these subjects is because they are sensitive, because they are emotionally loaded, because they're important. The problem becomes when you restrict people from talking about emotionally loaded topics, you are also restricting them from important topics. It's especially difficult if you're not good at it. If you are a new comedian, if you are an inexperienced comedian, you are going to make these mistakes. And you're going to make them near constantly. When you are at a professional comedy show, uh, you are far less likely to run into that kind of brazen putting an audience member on the spot. Or pulling them on stage and like having them do something potentially humiliating. You, you might run into it. You very well might. But you are more likely to see these kinds of meltdowns at the open mic level and open mics being of course open to the general public anyone who theoretically wants to come and perform can that's the part of the problem is we have a lot of people from very different cultures very different norms of behavior Completely different countries, in some cases, that are all coming together into this environment where the rules are very nebulously defined. And they are trying to, for the very first time, tell jokes to strangers who do not know them and with whom they have no rapport. All of us, I think, have a public and a private sense of humor. Uh, You probably have a public sense of humor and a private sense of humor. I definitely, even as a comedian, have a private sense of humor, one that I would not share with people I'm not very close to, because those things can get misinterpreted. They can be read as malicious when they are not. They're,
2: They're for people with whom there's a bond of trust.
3: Yeah. My best friend knows my opinions on most things, so he is not going to take if I make a risque joke about I don't know genocide or something, he's not going to understand from that. Jessica thinks genocide's cool. <laughs>
2: he knows me <laughs> That's a trust there. I, I think of some incredibly unsuccessful comedians I've seen it, and the reason the jokes failed is because no one knew them. no one trusts them. although it's interesting because fame in and of itself can generate a certain kind of trust. when there's a comedian on stage who you know is famous, who you know has made it, who you know is a pro. They start going down a risque path, even though I don't know the person, mm-hmm. I kind of have a certain degree of trust that, well, this is going to end well, because this guy's probably told this joke a thousand times before. Yeah. So I'm thinking in particular of a joke told by Louis C.K. lot back. There's one bit, and I think it's pretty famous. I think you probably know it. It's the one where he does the, I think it's called, Of Course, But Maybe. Oh, uh, yes. And the idea is that in the of course part, he talks about all the stuff we're supposed to think and maybe we do think on a conscious level. But then in the but maybe part, he talks about the really dark reflexes and instincts in our mind that we're trying to suppress. A rule on this podcast is that I'm not going to try and reproduce professional comedy shit because it never works. But uh, maybe I'll actually, maybe I'll just play a clip of it. Okay, like of course, of course... Children who have nut allergies need to be protected. Of course. We have to segregate their food from nuts, have their medication available at all times, and anybody who manufactures or serves food needs to be aware of deadly nut allergies. Of course. But maybe, maybe if touching a nut kills you, you're supposed to die. He's basically joking about dying kids. Yes. But I remember hearing it, and even in my own mind, there was this moment on the knife's edge. I have a peanut allergy. How hard is a joke like that to tell?
3: You have to work very hard. You have to work incredibly hard. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the case of Mike Ward. Oh,
2: yeah. Quebec comedian. Oh, yes. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I interviewed him about his whole situation for my previous podcast.
3: Mike Ward did a joke talking about sacred cows and talking about the degree to which Canadian society is very, very hypersensitive around things that we have adopted as our identity. He also makes fun of a disabled child... And the way he does it is very funny.
2: It's super funny. It
3: is. But he is naming a specific disabled child and making fun of him specifically about his disability.
2: If I remember correctly, the kid performed a song for the Pope.
3: Yes, he was formerly deaf. Preacher Collins is what he has. It it can involve deformities of the skull that can uh, affect hearing. And so he got cochlear implants, I believe, and he performed for the Pope. Uh, He became a a reasonably well-known singer in Quebec. Got an album even. He's he's a semi-public figure, but he's still very much a child. And that's where the ambiguity comes in. Because Mike Ward's joke is not, ha ha, let's all make fun of this child. Mike's joke is more so, isn't it awful that I am making fun of this child?
2: Unless I'm confusing two jokes, The kid had a a fatal condition.
3: No, he did not. But that's the joke. The joke is about the misunderstanding that Ward has. So Ward assumes, like, he's seeing this kid who's getting to meet the Pope. He's singing in front of the Pope. And the trope we have in our head when something like that happens, like, when we allow a disabled person to take center stage, it's usually sort of this odd pity thing.
2: Make-a-wish foundation, too.
3: It's make-a-wish, usually. But he does not have a fatal condition. So a lot of the joke has to do with the fact that his assumption was that this was a -a make-a-wish kid, and in fact, that was not the case. So it's this misunderstanding of like, when's he going to die already?
2: Ward is imputing to himself the false idea that he did have a fatal condition based on his cultural expectation. The kid keeps going. He makes an album. He's still in the headlines. Yes. And Ward, in his ignorant, narcissistic way, he says, oh God, am I still reading about this kid? Why isn't he dead? Mm -hmm. There's no way that the kid is the butt of the joke. However, to tell the joke properly... You have to give voice to this horrifying inner person inside you that's kind of like, oh, come on, you know, this the guy's 15 minutes are up. And on that basis, he got taken to court, I think, right?
3: Yes, he is. I think he's currently, I think the case is currently in front of the Supreme Court this session. I'm involved in a lot of disability-related stuff. I did autism advocacy back in Alberta And it's very much that impulsive thought that we squish down the moment we have it because we view it as uncharitable. We know it's a bad thought. We know it's a bad thought, so we push it down. And Ward was doing what comedians try to do, which is let the bad thought out. It's a release. Catharsis about the bad thought. And he's even criticizing himself for the bad thought, but he's acknowledging it. Speaking as like as a disabled person, there is a reality where in society we only acknowledge disabled children, usually through a spectrum of tragedy porn, essentially, you know, it's making ourselves feel good by paying attention to somebody who we nonetheless on some level find repulsive. And we don't want to acknowledge that to ourselves. So we have these saccharine kind of overt shows of how much we care about disabled people when at the same time we have that nasty little thought deep down of like, I don't wanna deal with this person, I don't wanna have to talk to this person, I find this person annoying, but I know that the reason I think that is because they are disabled.
2: And now a commercial message from Blinkist. If you're like me, you have a passion for self-improvement, Unfortunately, when it comes to, say, getting fit or eating right or dressing better, self-improvement is really difficult. But not when it comes to learning new things and broadening your horizons, especially when you're armed with the Blinkist app. Blinkist takes non-fiction book titles, pulls out the key takeaways, and puts them into text and audio explainers called Blinks that give you the most important information in just 15 minutes. Use Blinks to learn about topics such as philosophy, history, and science, or dive into psychology, health and nutrition, or personal growth. You've got thousands of titles and 27 categories of the world's best knowledge to choose from. Some of the most popular titles, for instance, are A Short History of Brexit, The Future of Capitalism, and Letters from a Stoic. And if you're more of a podcast person, they have you covered with Blinks for podcasts called Shortcasts. These two are packed into powerful 15-minute reads or listens, all in one app so you can learn anytime, anywhere with Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash to start your free 7-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist Premium Membership. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash with two L's and two T's, to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Quillette. And now back to our Quillette podcast. One way people square the circle is to say, well, if you're a member of this community, you can make these jokes. Yes. In New York before COVID, this guy, he came on on stage and, and one of the first things he said was, should lesbians be allowed to use dildos? I mean, they've made their choice. <laughs> If you're laughing at that, imagine like an actual funny person saying it. And then like 70% of the room laughed uproariously and the other 30% were nervous. At that point, he said, oh, don't worry, I'm gay. You know, I'm part of the LGBT community. Like I have lots of gay friends. And we're like, okay, he's allowed to make jokes like that. Kind of, right? Kind of. But then, but then he said something that I found even funnier, total deadpan. He said, hey, just so you know, yes, I'm gay, but I don't give a fuck about Judy Garland. <laughs> He was saying all these things out loud, but he was gay. Mm -hmm. This disabled kid joke that Mike Ward told, maybe a disabled comedian gets to tell that joke. Like, is that the way we square that circle?
3: I mean, it's definitely the way some people square that circle. It's definitely the approach some people have taken. And I think it kind of reflects a certain social norm, a certain social reality where we are more comfortable with people being far blunter about issues that directly affect them. And I think that that's definitely a strategy, but it's not a hard and fast rule and and it can get to a problem where depending on how expansive you are being in what you're allowed to talk about. So if we say like you can only do jokes about being disabled if you are disabled, Is that only jokes making fun of the disabled? Is that only jokes even referencing the disabled? Is that only jokes even criticizing the way that we as a society talk about the disabled? Are you, as a non-disabled person, allowed to describe your personal experience of having a disabled relative? Are you allowed to describe having a disabled friend? Are you allowed to make fun of those things? Are you allowed to talk about the perspective of an able-bodied person who doesn't understand disability.
2: In the case of Mike Ward, in a way, Mike Ward actually knows more about being a non-disabled person who's ignorant and narcissistic about the issue, which is the subject of his joke. So yes.
3: And I'd also say I did a lot of debate in university and in debate, you do not get to decide what side of the argument you are on. You do not get to decide what you have to say. You just decide how you're going to try to prove it. You are assigned a topic. And I've often been complimented on my ability to navigate social issues that do not directly affect me. But the only reason I got to the point where I was able to talk about those things in a sensitive way as a random person from nowhere Alberta was because I was in a situation where I had to talk about it and I got direct feedback on how I was doing. I was in a situation where I felt safe to talk about it and safe to occasionally be wrong and occasionally misstep and offend. And that is what allowed me to get to the point where I was skilled at navigating the issue.
2: So you had a line in your, in your essay, the way bad comedians become good comedians is by making mistakes, including mistakes of insensitivity.
3: Absolutely. When you see someone get up on stage for the first time, they're very, very nervous. And this is also happens in a debate context. You take an 18-year-old, you put him in a situation where he has to talk for seven minutes straight about a very sensitive issue, and he is going to make mistakes. He is young, he is inexperienced, he has, does not know much about the world, he has not had a lot of these conversations, because like, one of the reasons why I, as a queer person, am able to talk about queer issues very well, even ones that do not directly affect me, is because I have been included in those conversations. and. If you're a young man, however, you have not been included, or if you have been part of those conversations, it was not a collaborative effort. It was a combative effort where someone is angry at you. They are not taking the time to explain the issue. They are not coming from a place of compassion. And maybe they're even assuming malice.
2: Or if not, in that combative spirit, maybe in a highly didactic spirit. Judgmental. Or, you know, here are the 17 things you have to know, and you're not allowed to contradict this stuff. And you're
3: not even allowed to question it or critique it.
2: There's less opportunity to stress test these ideas.
3: And this can actually be like a lot of a problem with, the usual term is white sensitivity, where white people are incredibly uncomfortable talking about racial issues. And the moment they do, they stick their foot in their mouth My personal diagnosis of that is that it is in part due to, one, either living in segregated areas, uh, being taught in segregated situations, but it's also a reality of not being allowed to explore an idea. Because we, we often just want people in a position of privilege to be purely receivers of knowledge. Like, I want you to just sit there and listen while I tell you what is true. But from my own perspective, as somebody who does have learning difficulties, I always learned best being actually able to interact with an idea, to describe it in my own words, and to explain it to other people. That is what actually helped me explain how I understood it. And a reality where I am simply expected to sit down and be told what is true is one where I cannot test whether I have actually understood what I am told
2: you have performed in so-called safe space venues and you have performed and I don't know if it has a name it sounds weird to call them unsafe space people do okay so
3: (laughs) (laughs) that being said like I you know I don't walk in there and then somebody's like you know, there's a fist fight and somebody bites somebody's ear off. That's not what's happening. It's like
2: the bar scene in Star Wars. But do you have two different sets? Do you have to be essentially two different kinds of comedic entertainers, depending on the house you're playing?
3: I personally don't. So this is one of the odder things about me. While I am very open-minded, while I'm a, I'm big into freedom of speech, I'm a very clean comic. I, I am. I I have 45 minutes where I swear twice And it's mild.
2: (laughs) Wow! So it's like church friendly. Oh
3: yes, absolutely. I because that's what gets you money. If you can do your set in front of ten year olds, and no one's gonna like with like reasonably chill moms, then you can make a lot of money.
2: Corporate gigs too. That's what gets you
3: in corporate gigs. That's what gets you in front of. That's what gets you on TV. Safe space comedy is not the same thing as clean comedy, and that might be a confusing thing for some people. Clean comedy, you can do in front of a church congregation. Safe space comedy, you could not do in front of a church congregation. Like, you can reference pretty raunchy sexuality. Because
2: there's a lot of confessional stuff, from what I can Very
3: see. Very confessional stuff. And it's often quite graphic. Or it can be.
2: Let me go back a few years, because I'm not sure... The term safe space was being used a few years back.
3: Biggest in like 2017, 2018.
2: There was a period during which the New York Times ran in the art section ran these sort of essays and profiles where it was primarily female comics The theme was larger than just, oh, look at this new wave of comedy. It was kind of like deconstructing comedy. Like, does comedy have to be knee-slapping funny? Does it have to be about punchlines? Maybe it can be about who we are. Maybe it could be more honest and authentic. Mm -hmm. They profiled a few, and some of them had actually genuinely moving and sad life stories that they were working through with comedy. Are there examples of safe space comedians who are now household names who've made it big?
3: I don't know if they were safe space comedians. I do know confessional comedians that have had like these big big breakthroughs. Often the one referenced is Australia's Nanette. Well, the album's Nanette. The comedian is Hannah Gadsby, who is very talented, by the way. Incredibly talented and very skilled. And she kind of did this very confessional set that was...
2: Pretty dark, if I remember, right? Pretty
3: dark. It, It was about this... Irony of putting yourself down and hiding your scars through humor. And she, uh, one of the most interesting things she does in that set. And, and th- th- by the way, this is a very common style outside of North America. North America where, is where we're all just like, punchline, punchline. Why do you want to have a deeper meaning? You know, that's, that's a North American style. It's not as common in New Zealand, Australia, and the UK, where there's often these kinds of confessional messages, um, even among, like, very mainstream comedians.
2: In a draft version of your article, you talked about how some people use this acronym, LPM or or laughs per minute, where that's something people actually measure.
3: Absolutely. Uh, Newbie comics tend to be a lot more rapid fire because you are only being given so much time. If you have five minutes to work with, you need to be loaded with jokes. You need to be getting a laugh, a laugh, a laugh, a laugh, a laugh. But if you have 45 minutes,
2: it's hard to be on stage if you're not getting laughs if you're a noob.
3: Oh, it's torturous. It's very easy for them to lose their nerve while they're on stage and to freak out. When you are trying to recover the situation, it can go very wrong if you panic and you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. You know, I have an empathy for it as somebody who has, I I have an anxiety disorder. I have really, really severe anxiety. And I decided that this was a great hobby, but it, it is in fact incredibly difficult to be in that situation.
2: You must get this a lot, but I'm going to say it anyway. You come across as as funny and self-assured in this conversation, but I've talked to enough people like you to know that that's not necessarily indicative of a lack of anxiety. Oh, I'm anxious right now. But describe a little bit how that squares, because I think 90% of people listening to this say that even with normal anxiety levels, there's no way they can get on stage and tell jokes. How do those two things come together in the same person?
3: It's the same thing that makes a class clown. Class clowns are not people who are fully confident in themselves. They are people who feel very insecure about their place in society. If you are somebody who is constantly demanding attention, constantly seeking attention, it's probably coming from some degree of anxiety. Like, this isn't true for everybody. There's just some real extroverts in the world that just like being the center of attention. But a lot of the time, this kind of attention-seeking behavior is an expression of insecurity. This is is the thing for me. Uh, I have a lot of trouble reading faces. It's a big issue for me. Uh, It makes it hard for me to recognize people. It makes it hard for me to understand people's emotions. But I always understood a laugh. So if you're me, you have this kind of face blindness, you have trouble reading people's feelings and you've been bullied in the past. So like you, you have been socially isolated. And and so you feel the need to constantly ask for reassurance. You, you, I used to get told off by my mother for constantly asking like, is everything okay? Is everything okay? Is everything okay? But one of the ways I was able to check in with that, with people who, I'm not allowed to constantly be asking that was to make them laugh. If I make them laugh, I get a big, big laugh. That probably means everything's fine. That probably means they don't hate me. They do like me. And that's a reassurance. So in my particular case, it comes from this constant need to be reassured that I am
2: liked. The problem with it is sometimes as if you're a comedian, you're getting those laughs from strangers and does that become kind of a surrogate for maybe more yes intimate connections with people around you?
3: It can be. I'm one of the people with like one of the healthiest relationships with my family in comedy, to be honest. Like I'm on speaking terms with my mom. I'm already head and shoulders above.
2: A lot of people have seen the, uh, the Seinfeld movie. I think it's just called Comedian. This is a, a while ago. They probably went in thinking it'd be funny. It's actually a very dark movie because... Comedians themselves take this very analytical and oddly mirthless approach to the tradecraft of comedy.
3: I've watched the movie. It has Orny Adams in it.
2: You describe how you've got all of these anxiety issues, the baseline here. We haven't even talked about the economics of comedy are brutal. You know, I mean, a lot of these people are working for free. Mm -hmm. Ninety percent of them aren't making a lot of money off it. But then there's a lot of left-wing liberal politics Not that there's anything wrong with
3: that. There's a Seinfeld reference.
2: It is a Seinfeld reference, because I'm old. But you describe this atmosphere where all of the problems that are inherent in comedy, the economics of it and the anxiety and the, the brutal feedback of people not laughing at your jokes, are compounded by all this ideological monitoring. You describe comics who actually have left the industry because of this. They survived all the other brutal stuff, but they got sick of this stuff. Or they were forced out in Vancouver. How much of what you describe in the article, the ideological stuff, applies to other cities?
3: I've never heard anyone say that it is as severe as it is in Vancouver. And that's because we're relatively small, but at the same time, a little bit stuck up. But this is a problem in Toronto. This is a problem everywhere. And it's not as severe when you can just ignore it. When there are five people Who consider themselves the madam of safe space comedy? They kind of compete with each other, so they kind of have to behave themselves. Insofar as they're not colluding with one another, there's a certain restraint on behavior. If you
2: go too far, there's another shop in town.
3: If you go too far, if you're too much of a jerk, if even the other ideologues really aren't into what you're doing, you will lose confidence and you will slowly have worse and worse quality shows as people abandon you in in terms of their labor. That doesn't happen very quickly among comedians because we are desperate. (laughs) We are we're we're scabs. We will break the lines for anything. But if you had a more competitive market where you had more decentralized power, people would abandon this behavior. They would.
2: One of the most interesting subplots in your article is this guy, Jason Chan, the Asian man. Ah, Justin. Justin Chan. And that, by the way, I'm not, that's not the nickname that John Kay has given to this guy. I like.
3: No, that, (laughs) he self-identifies as Justin Chan, the Asian man, and he sexually identifies as American, and he would love you to know that.
2: (laughs) Okay. Okay. So.
3: He is very much Chinese, but he was born in Toronto. One of the interesting
2: (laughs) things there is even after he was excommunicated from the woke comedy scene in Vancouver, he still was so interested in the comedy scene that he actually acted, as I understand as, as a volunteer doorman at a comedy show. He wasn't telling jokes. He was just kind of on the periphery. You know, you hear about these people who, you know, they love music so much that they'll just, they'll do anything. They'll become a roadie or they'll, they'll, they'll busk and on a corner. Does comedy have that core of people who just, you cannot keep them away from comedy clubs? Even, even if they're not on stage, they just love it so much.
3: Yeah, absolutely. No, there are, there are people for whom this is such a passion that you cannot convince them. And, and that's, that's the thing is, you know, he was blocked by everybody. Honestly, like scrolling through comments about him on the forum, it's about as close to hate speech as I have ever seen about a person I personally know. (laughs) It is—he's called a waste of space, you know, a waste of human life. He—he keeps getting referred to as garbage, as a cockroach. And before he became this amateur doorman, when everybody was saying, you know, you don't belong here, you don't belong in safe space comedy, we don't want you at our shows, he tried to run his own show. It was reasonably successful. He had his own show. He ran several of them. They were well attended, but he he had so much trouble booking people because the vast majority of the scene either had him blocked or was unable to talk to him or was unwilling to talk to him. There are lots of people like him. There are people who just love art so much that they are willing to take a lot of abuse.
2: But what if they're not that funny?
3: Oh, that happens. That was a lot.
2: Have you had to tell people the problem isn't the politics or whatever? It's just that you're not that funny.
3: Yeah, sometimes you have to say that. Well, sometimes it's used uh, facetiously.
2: <laughs> how do you how do you say facetiously? You're not that funny.
3: <laughs> well, what, what I mean what I mean facetiously, it's like we'll we'll go to this newbie comic. They've done maybe three sets, and we're like, "You're just not funny. Get out," because we don't like them. Essentially, and that's not funny. <laughs> no, it's not. It's it's really messed up behavior, and we do it a lot. You know, like there are people who are in the in crowd and they have been in comedy for six, seven, 10, 15 years and they are not funny and they have never been funny.
2: For people who aren't in Canada, they maybe they can't imagine how that happens. The reason how it happens is that we have this whole apparatus like the CBC and they will put you on if you're, if you've got the right politics, if you've checked the right boxes quota wise, but these people can count and they go to the CBC website. And if you look at their videos online, there's just, there's not a lot of traction despite the wall to wall promotional coverage. This person was getting by the CBC Juno Awards, the local arts press, surely they have a sense of shame.
3: It's more so about cognitive dissonance. So one of the things we do is in, in Vancouver is this, it's, often criticized very quietly by other comedians, which is if the audience just doesn't laugh, just say they're racist. If the audience laughs at the wrong thing, if they laugh at something else that someone who they're not supposed to laugh at, if they laugh at someone they're not supposed to laugh at, it's because they are bad people. If they don't laugh at you, it's because they are bad people.
2: You say in your article, I think you have a line, as a queer person, one thing you hate it is when non-funny queers are elevated to... Fake Canadian comedy stardom.
3: I know lots of people in queer comedy who are funnier than this, and they are not getting their shot. They are not getting the same attention because they don't fit into this cookie cutter mold, this political idea of what we want our gay comics to look like. You know, either because they don't dress well, or they're too masculine, or they're gross. And by gross, I mean vulgar. This is frustrating to me because this is not even appealing to the queer market. (laughs) Even if you do not care what straight white dudes think, you should at least care what gay people think. You should at least care what racial minorities think. And those people are not even watching this. So who are we appealing to?
2: And now, a commercial message from Skillshare, one of our sponsors for this episode of the Quillette podcast. Skillshare is an online learning community that offers membership with meaning. If you're looking to develop your professional skill set, there's plenty of courses to choose from, including logos and branding, web development, film, and video. In my case, I've taken courses on Adobe Photoshop and used that knowledge to design some of the graphics you see on the Quillette website. Skillshare classes include a combination of video lessons and a class project so you can apply what you've learned. Members get unlimited access to thousands of inspiring classes, most of which are under 60 minutes with short lessons to fit any schedule. Whether you're a dabbler or a pro, Skillshare will help you experience real improvement with classes designed for real life in a supportive environment. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash Quillette and get a one month free trial premium membership. That's dot com slash Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. Skillshare.com slash Quillette. And now back to our Quillette podcast. This is something I don't think any male writer could have written. I'm not even sure you can get away with saying it, but you did. You wrote that there's such a hard press to get more female comics, a well-intentioned hard press, right, mm-hmm. to get more female comics on stage that inevitably you end up making sacrifices and saying, well, this person has, only has a couple years experience, but yeah. you know, we need her on the ticket to get to 25 or 30% female comics, right? And, and you say the audience doesn't know that. No. And maybe that comic isn't as funny because they haven't honed their art as much. And maybe the audience comes away thinking, that's uh, ah, true, I guess, you know... I guess women aren't funny. You kind of say the quiet part out loud. And you also say that you're not allowed to acknowledge that this affirmative action takes place, even though it's happening. Yeah, you're not.
3: And here's the thing. I would respect it if we just openly argued for it. Because there is an argument. You could you could say, like, you know, we should give slightly more developmental spots to people who are traditionally not represented in comedy. And I would go, that doesn't seem offensive to me. Go on ahead. The problem becomes we're not allowed to acknowledge it. We're not allowed to talk about it. If you talk about it, you will be punished. And uh, I am not joking there. I am not being paranoid. You will be punished for stating that.
2: The punishment doesn't come, obviously, through legal channels. It comes through... Social ones. Well, and getting frozen out of opportunities. I mean, the world can be so small. You describe how being in or out of a certain Facebook group in Vancouver can affect your ability to get opportunities. Some people are going to read your article and say, okay, this this is a person talking about cancel culture. And you do use that term at one point. But then... We're going to come back to Louis C.K. because the counter argument is Louis C.K., well, he admitted to masturbating in front of female comedians and he claimed that, well, he got their consent. but um,
3: It's ambiguous. And you know,
2: Well, and even got normal consent. If you're a big star and some female comic who's not as powerful as you. It
3: can be very uncomfortable to say no.
2: And yet he came back and played sold-out shows here in Toronto. I mean, I, kn- I know he played sold-out shows because the, the Safe Space press, they were, they were horrified by it. Mm. Is that proof that cancel culture doesn't exist, that Louis C.K. was able to come back?
3: No. It's proof that if you are famous enough, it might not matter. But it is not proof that cancel culture does not exist. Because this is the problem. Most of the examples of where cancel culture has been genuinely successful did not happen to people who were famous enough to overcome it. They are happening to people you have never heard of, because that's when it's easiest. It is very easy to cancel somebody who no one has ever heard of. It is very easy to cancel somebody who has done eight sets, or they've only been around for two years, and it's very easy to freeze them out, to isolate them, and to defame them. And... In, in in the Louis C.K. example, he has a large fan base that is willing to give him a lot of a lot of leeway. They're willing to deny what happened. They're willing to make excuses for what happened or they're willing to make peace with the cognitive dissonance of it.
2: For every Louis C.K., there's a 100 Justin Chan, the Asian man's, I guess.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's probably only one Justin Chan, the Asian man, although there is a lot of <laughs> Justin Chan's. And apparently that's why he went with it. And like this, this is part of why I, ha- I use the examples I do. It is largely right-leaning or libertarian men who are willing to let me talk about it. But they are not the majority of people who are affected by this. They are just the people who are least likely to benefit from the system as it exists. It, there's nothing in it for them. So they're the ones who are willing to call it out for what it is. And that, that kind of allows the safe space people to describe this purely as misogyny or as a political rejection of their noble aims. But there's actually this incredibly large, extremely politically mixed, extremely gender mixed group of people who are just, they just don't wanna be involved. They don't wanna be involved at all. Like I have had today had numerous women contact me directly and say, you are so brave, thank you for what you're doing. Any way I can help. But of course, I don't want to be named. I don't want to be named. Because we can be very brutal to women. Like, if you are a woman who stands up against this, it is particularly harsh.
2: Or Asian men. Is one of the reasons Justin... I'm going to keep saying Justin Chan, the Asian man, because I like saying it. (laughs) But is one of the reasons Justin Chan, the Asian man, got hit so hard was because it's sort of like, hey, you're supposed to be BIPOC. You're supposed to be on the right side. Like, was that part of it?
3: Part of it. And part of because he wouldn't just stay down. Right. (laughs) You know, these are not tough people. They are used to, like, oh, if I get two of my buddies together and I physically lean over you after an open mic, you're just going to stop talking about this. You're just going to stop criticizing this. You're going to shut up and you're going to go away. Justin Chan does not have that capacity. It's not that he doesn't feel pain, it's not that he doesn't feel like it, the emotional weight of this kind of rejection. It is that he he is so eccentric that he would just keep doing it anyway. Like that kind of that oppositional, defiant, I think you're wrong. You haven't explained to me how you're right, so I'm going to keep saying what I'm saying.
2: It's spectrumy. It's a little spectrumy.
3: It's a little spectrumy. He's 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 very eccentric. Like, I, I think I mentioned explicitly in the article, he does have severe ADHD, he has dyslexia, it often compromises his ability to articulate himself clearly uh, in text format, um, which is kind of how I ended up in the position of trying to speak for him. But like, I do think there is an element of it being, you're supposed to be on our side.
2: Now, speaking of people you've heard from, have you heard from ButtChugger604?
3: But Sugar 604 is as of yet silent.
2: <laughs> His silence is uh, deafening. That being,
3: <laughs> deafening. That being said, uh, I definitely have had emails about me intimating that I am a bigot sent to my former debate society. I had someone explicitly tell me I am not welcome to take a five minute unpaid slot at her open mic. Because I'm associating with violent individuals.
1: Okay,
2: I know that's you mean that as a joke, but on the other hand, this is the stuff of which comedy careers are made. You write in your article that even big stars will go out on a Monday night and take an unpaid gig at amateur hour because if you're a comedian. That that's the way you test new material. You seem like a strong individual, but are you concerned that, that this is going to have a career ramification for you?
3: Oh, incredibly. <laughs> this is terrifying. I have been barely sleeping. I have been barely eating. I, I do not like confrontation.
2: You say that, but in doing my research for this, I went back and looked at a lot of those Facebook pages. You were pushing back. Like in the last few months, maybe the last year, what was it that made you start to push back?
3: A friend of mine from comedy, he runs a show here in town. He sent me a meme today. And it it's not visually interesting, but it reads... If you only care about speaking out against injustice when there's social capital to be won and an audience worthy of praising you, you're not going to get along with autistic people. I was bullied as a kid, quite severely. I have had a lot of mental health repercussions because of that. And I was always very hungry for spots. I love stand-up. I am so passionate about it. It's one of the most important things in my life. I was one of those people who, you know, I would go out to the boonies, I would go out to the suburbs just to get a five-minute unpaid spot, even though I had to spend an hour and a half on transit. I was one of those people. Uh, and, And not everybody in comedy is one of those people, but I was. And one of the things about the way in which Vancouver is socially segregated is If you're one of the popular people, you do not need to talk to the unpopular people. You do not need to go to the same shows as them. You do not need to talk to them. And in fact, you are deemed suspicious for talking to them. And I would end up at shows with these people, the the people who had to go elsewhere in order to get attention, in order to get stage time. And I have this really loud, really distinctive laugh. So people always know what I am laughing at. So some of the the guys eventually, the, the, the people who are taking the brunt of this, eventually realize that I do not laugh purely at the popular kids' jokes.
2: That was an unsettling detail in your piece. You talked about how when you're trying to break into the comedy scene and it's open mic night and you're not sure who to laugh at. Like, it's a political act to laugh at someone because you may find out after the show, it's like, oh, honey, we don't laugh at that person.
3: Yeah, or, or even, like, you're not allowed to like their comments on Facebook. People are watching.
2: The whole Louis C.K. comeback, there was this weird thing where it wasn't enough to say that he's a pig and what he does was gross. You also had to say, he's not funny and he's a bad comedian. And that was yeah, weird to which me. which
3: is untrue
2: (laughs) the wagner principle like wagner was a horrifying human not just the anti-semitism in his personal life wagner was a horrifying person really terrible terrible person but he was a brilliant musical composer you can go down the list there's a thousand examples of this but people tried to pretend that louis ck was a bad comedian but it sounds like this happens even with just joe stand-up he gets up and you're saying well like this guy he had a bad breakup with this girl we like so he's not funny
3: it is disturbing and it's it's something like I did not initially understand that because I I can I can be quite socially naive. I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. I I assume that when I was off making friends with all the unpopular comedians because that was always my social tactic, I make friends with people who are unpopular because they can't reject me. <laughs> and I assume people just thought, you know, Jessica's naive. Jessica doesn't understand whatever, that's just Jessica. And eventually they start confiding in me. Like, these these guys start confiding in me and they start mentioning the bullying. And the more they tell me their side of these ambiguous incidents that I never got the full details on, the more concerned I am about what's happening. And it's everybody. The only people who don't mention the bullying are the popular kids. Everybody talks about it.
2: And now, a commercial message for those of you looking to add Bitcoin to your investment portfolio or retirement account. And I realize that this is a confusing subject. I remember the first time I got Bitcoin, I walked into a convenience store that had the Bitcoin logo, went up to a kind of reverse ATM, fed in some bills, and received, in return, a long series of numbers and letters. Then I spent an hour trying to figure out how to feed those numbers and letters into a Bitcoin wallet on my phone. I wanted to invest in cryptocurrencies, but surely there had to be a better way. And that's what brings me to BitTrust IRA, a seamless, secure, and easy way to add cryptocurrency to your portfolio. BitTrust IRA stores your private keys with military-grade encryption. They have a 24-7 trading platform with no minimum investment and unlimited trades. They also offer what I'm told are the lowest trading fees in the industry. Many crypto assets have been great performers this year, and some analysts will tell you they're a great way to start building intergenerational wealth. For those looking to invest, skip the convenience store and go to bittrustira.com slash Quillette to learn more. For a limited time, BitTrust IRA is waiving the sign-up fee for Quillette podcast listeners, a $50 value. Go to bittrustira.com slash Quillette, B I T T R U S T I R A dot com slash Q U I double L E double T E. And now back to our podcast. You say the popular kids, which now means very woke social justice people. 20 years ago, that would have meant the frat dudes who are making jerk off jokes. Mm -hmm. That comedy club that I described, where the guy was making really crass jokes, the Jessica Pigeot of today, would she have been booked there? In your article, you're describing maybe the overreach of the social justice movement that allowed people like you to perform. 20 years ago, would you have been able to perform at all with who you are and how you self-identify and the kind of material you do?
3: That's a funny question, because here's the thing about older comedy. It, It was quite insular. It was extremely masculine. It was on some level hostile to people who were not traditionally in it. But it also catered to outsiders. Like, one of the reasons why Jewish comedy was so big was it was because of this social group that was close enough to mainstream that it could understand it and it could critique it, but outside of it, so it could see it for itself. Like, it's hard to criticize something that you are You know, even people like Chappelle, like he he grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. So like he is, even as one of the most famous black comedians, he is somewhat an outsider and an insider to both black and white culture. So in, in the United States, black comedians and Jewish comedians were huge. But you also saw a lot of queer women disproportionately represented compared to heterosexual women. Even now, queer women are way more common than you would expect based on the baseline number of women in general. This is a conversation I've had with a lot of, especially male comedians I know, like would I be allowed? And the answer is I don't know. I think uh, even if we did not have safe space comedy, because of the social shift uh, around our view of homosexuality of uh, gender nonconformity in women. I think that regardless of what happened in the internal politics of comedy, I would have been allowed.
2: One of the schism points that the Vancouver stand-up scene really went to civil war on was on the question of sexual abuse and alleged... Most of it was misconduct. Misconduct. And at one point, there was this effort to... It was formerly called the Safer Comedy Spaces Coalition Vancouver. Yep. So it, and they even created this whole reporting form, which is strangely bureaucratic, where you had to list the type of incident that you suffered, which starts out at rape and goes down to trolling on social media, like a wide range of behavior. It was a well-intentioned thing. Yes. And you acknowledge, as with any subculture, you can get creeps, and sometimes you can get violent people who do horrible things. This... I got the sense you thought this went too far, and and even in in that woke environment, this effort seems to have collapsed. But not before some people got excommunicated, and not always excommunicated for alleged abuse, but excommunicated for dissent. concerns about due process. Like there was there was one guy who was just like, hey, wait, we're comedians, we're not police officers, we're not prosecutors, we're not judges. What what the hell are we doing here? How do you resolve that? Because it is absolutely true, as the creators of this. Safe Space Coalition project, they say there's some behavior that doesn't rise to the level of crime, but is still of great concern and, and victimizes women. Where's the line between addressing that and respecting due process?
3: One of the things I think should be emphasized, because this is, this is so normal in stand-up, in Canadian stand-up, that people don't even question it. I literally, one of the oddest things when I first entered stand-up was people griping about all these right-wing male edgelords constantly whining about due process. And I'm like, that's not an edgelord opinion. in some (laughs) subcultures, it
2: has become an edgelord thing. Yeah. But part of the background here is that you had the Stephen Galloway case in Vancouver, which some Quillette readers will actually know about. That was an environment in Canadian literary circles where to stand up for due process, even if your name was Margaret Atwood...
3: Mm
1: -hmm. you
2: were a bad feminist.
3: It happens very much in situations of insularity and groupthink. So this is part of why I strongly disagree with, let's eject all the edgelords or let's eject everyone who criticizes us. Because even if you largely think that someone is wrong, they need to think differently enough from you to criticize what you're doing if you are doing something wrong because you're probably not gonna notice. Like most social justice advocates In the general population, if you ask them, hey, instead of having a heavily regulated but often imperfect justice system, how about we hold an ad hoc informal tribunal run by comedians where we prosecute our colleagues and direct competitors with no burden of proof and no discussion (laughs) of mens rea? Like, I don't think they're going to say yes, not to mention that we're going to socially and professionally penalize anyone who criticizes how we're going about this or who fails to immediately accept the judgment of the collective without well, question.
2: Just, not, not when you put it like that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, not when I put it like that. When I put it like that, it sounds terrible. But the problem is no one has been putting it like that because it's very, very hard to tell people who have been victimized. They have been treated terribly. It is hard to look them in the eye and say, you are not allowed to eject that person. Even though they make you uncomfortable, even though you have this deep-seated conflict with them, there hasn't been enough due process. This hasn't been proven enough, and we can't do what you're asking us to do. That's incredibly emotionally difficult, especially on a one-to-one basis. To an extent, it it has to be accepting our limitations as single actors who are not trained in this. We do not understand it well enough. Sexual misconduct is one of the most complex and difficult areas in which to make these determinations. And we need to have a little bit of humility about that. And my, my policy solution largely is we need to change these power structures. One of the problems with how we have conceptualized the, the, the issue of sexual misconduct in comedy is we have stopped seeing it as a problem of unaccountable power, and we have started seeing it as a problem of people who make me uncomfortable.
2: With the word uncomfortable, as you say in the essay, very broadly defined. So. I usually like to send people to a website where they can learn more about the interviewee. So is it like JessicaPigeot.com or is there some equivalent to that?
3: There is no equivalent to that for me. I am somebody who I've gone internationally a couple times, just popped over the border. I do not perform to solo shows. People do not know who I am. I am not famous.
2: You're Quillette famous.
3: <laughs> uh, <so. laughs> this is not what I wanted to be known for. <laughs> I don't want to be, because that's that's the problem for me is like, I don't actually want to be an anti-cancel culture advocate. I don't want to be fighting the good fight against the SJWs. I'm just a person who is concerned. And I'm concerned both as somebody who is queer and, and, and somebody who who thinks, And this is something I do want to leave you on. It is a type of benevolent sexism to assume that women and non-binary people are incapable of abuse, that we are incapable of harm. I think it's important to note that this form, this, this tip line was not made available to most male comedians. And when you set up a system of accountability that has no accountability for the people with control over it, you will hurt people.
2: Jessica Pigeot's article is called Life as a Stand-Up Comic Can Be Brutal, Safe Space Call-It Culture is Making It Unbearable. And you can read it at Quillette. Jessica, thanks so much for being on the Quillette podcast.
0: Thank you for having me. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.